0: Jodi told us a story a few weeks ago about her freshman year in college, and so I thought I'd tell you mine. It was, I'm trying to remember it, that's the deal. It was 1968, so we're coming up on 50 years, ladies. Um, anyway, my parents had just dropped me off in front of an old, very impressive dome-shaped building on the campus of Immaculata College near Philadelphia. It was an all-girls college right down the road from an all-boys college known as Villanova. Yes, I thought that was a pretty good idea. Um, There I stood with most of my things up in the room, uh, but beside me was one of my most prized possessions, my lady sunbeam portable dome-shaped hairdryer. (laughs) Yes, look at that monstrosity. It's considered a vintage piece now if you go on eBay or anywhere else. Those were the days of orange, can-sized curlers, and they had to fit under that baby. I tried to smile as my family drove away, but even they would often talk about how sad and forlorn I looked, how lost, as I, they left me standing there on the curb with my portable dome-shaped hair dryer by my side. And I looked sad and forlorn because that's exactly how I felt. Um, actually, what I really felt was forsaken. My little tribe was headed off to New Jersey and any feelings of relative safety and protection and knownness were flying down the road with them. I've never felt so all alone in my life. I didn't know a single soul on that campus and there wasn't a single soul that knew me. And inside there was a deep ache. I was longing for safety and familiarity and the comfort of somebody who knew me and loved me and accepted me warts and all. So I did what most young women away from home do their first night in college, not. I cried myself to sleep that night. Because I had this one thought in my head, I just want to go home. I wonder if any of you have ever had that feeling, if you can relate to that 18-year-old girl. Because I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who struggled like that. I know you've been there a time or two. Maybe you're there right now, longing for some sense of safety and security. Maybe you've lost a loved one recently, or your health is failing. Or maybe somebody you love has simply walked away from the relationship, and you feel alone and rejected. Or maybe the sadness you feel is because of some bad choices you've made, and you'd give anything to rewind the last week, or month, or year, and start all over again. Sometimes that's what we want to do, isn't it? Just start all over and go to a place of safety where we are seen and accepted and loved just the way we are. Tim Keller says it this way, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is what we need more than anything. And so the question is, where can we go to find that kind of love? Where can we go for the total acceptance and safety that we crave so deeply? Where is it safe to be ourselves? And today we're going to watch as Peter discovers the timeless truth that we can always run home to Jesus. He is our home. Moses called God our dwelling place. He's our refuge. That was used over and over again in the Old Testament. And today we're going to see Jesus that way. As the faithful one who stands there with the light on, when we're feeling all alone, when nobody seems to understand, when we feel ashamed, when everybody keeps leaving, there's one who stays by us. He knows us and loves us and can't wait for us to show up on his doorstep. We can always run home to Jesus no matter what. I don't know about you, but I'm thinking Peter needs to hear that right about now because last week we left him at what was probably one of the lowest points in his life. We watched him stand in the courtyard while Jesus was being abused and falsely accused, and not once, not twice, but three times Peter refused to acknowledge that he even knew Jesus. If Peter had been alive today, I'm thinking he'd look back on that moment and label it an epic failure. I'm thinking he's thinking, it's all over I'll never recover from this. I've turned my back on my Savior, and I've ruined everything. The scripture tells us he went out and wept bitterly. I think it's safe to say that he felt alone, ashamed, and broken. I think he feels like a failure. But Peter is about to have an encounter with the risen Lord, and he's going to learn that Jesus loves him way more than he ever knew. And then we're going to see how he responds to that love. So we as disciples can follow Peter's example. And so let's turn to John 21, where this encounter takes place. It's the only place in the Bible where this is recorded. And I'll set the stage for you a little bit. A lot has happened since that evening in the courtyard. Jesus has been through several different trials. Pilate had him beaten and condemned him to death. He went to the cross and he died. And three days later, he rose from the dead And he's appeared to his disciples several times before this. Um, This is the third time that he gathers them together and and visits with them. So, first let's look at the facts in this passage. You know, we're going to observe the text, and I'm just going to list the facts. The who, what, when, and where. Peter, plus six other disciples, have gone fishing back in Galilee. They've been out all night and didn't catch a thing. Early in the morning, Jesus comes and yells to them, "'Hey, friend, you haven't caught anything, have you?' "'No,' they say. "'Well, then try throwing the net on the right side.' They don't recognize him, but they do it anyway. "'153 large tilapia jump in the net. "'Now Peter knows it's Jesus. "'He grabs his clothes and wraps them around him "'and jumps in the water and swims to, to shore. "'And the disciples bring up the rear with the fish. "'Meanwhile, Jesus makes a charcoal fire, "'puts bread and fish on to fry, and yells, "'Breakfast is ready!' He serves the disciples, and then he asks Peter three times, do you love me? Peter answers three times, yes, Lord, you know I do. And three times, Jesus tells him, feed my sheep. Now, if we were to just look at this passage and only gather the facts, this is what we might say went on in John 21, but oh my, there is so much more going on underneath the surface. I mean, just observing the facts means we come to the scripture mostly in a left-brained way, right? And um, so we need to do, what we need to do this morning is pay attention to the tone and the atmosphere and pick up on all the emotion that's lying there underneath the surface and get our right brains involved as well. And we really, really need to do that here because this is a powerful picture of restoration. This passage has kindness and tenderness written all over it. So, let's zoom in on Jesus first, and then we'll look at Peter and his response. So, verse 4 said, when the sun comes up, Jesus was standing on the beach, right? The disciples have gone to Galilee, and we pondered this question about, in our minds, why? Why did they go back to Galilee? Well, there are quite a few thoughts about that, actually. Um, They didn't know what the future would hold. Some think that maybe they just went back to while away the time. Um, It was kind of like a distraction, maybe. Or they were thinking, well, we've got to eat. Let's go fishing. Our families, we don't know what's going to happen, so um, we might even need to go back to fishing. So we might be a little rusty. Let's go back to Galilee and do that. Or perhaps they were just going back there because it feels safe and familiar. And we get that, don't we? Going back to something safe and familiar when you're stressed. Or maybe, and I think of Peter in particular, he's already disqualified himself as a fisher of men. But in any case, Peter's going in the wrong direction. And here comes Jesus. He stands there on the shore like a father looking for his wayward kids. He's got his hand over his eyes and he's searching the sea for any sight of them. And there they are. And boy, they look tired and hungry and chilly. They've been out all night. Their circadian rhythms are very low and they're discouraged. There was no fish. I think they're still pretty confused. I'll bet they're still grappling with some of the worst days of their lives mixed in with some of the best. Emotionally, I think they are all over the place. Jesus is alive, but what does that mean? And Peter's probably still trying to figure out what he's going to do for a living. So he's trying, his hand is fishing, and it's not working out so well for Peter. And into this comes kindness and tenderness personified. Jesus pursues them, and he pursues us too. He comes for us. He comes for us when our aloneness and our brokenness and our feelings of inadequacy, when we're trying to hide from him, when we're trying to figure out how to do life on our own, he comes to us when we need him most. Psalm 23.6 says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. But you know what? In the Hebrew, it is way more emphatic than that. It says, surely goodness and mercy will hunt you down. How does it make you feel to know that your Jesus will hunt you down with his steadfast love? That, how does it make you feel to know that the God of the universe loves you beyond reason and has gone through death itself to have a close relationship with you? Ladies, he wants us. Broken, busted up us. Jesus shows up as our pursuer. And then he calls. He calls out to those disciples and he says, friends, you haven't caught any fish yet, have you? And it really is. It's more negative than, hey, have you caught any fish? It's friends, you haven't caught any fish yet, have you? And uh, the NIV says friends, but actually the language is much more endearing. He's actually saying little ones, little children, or even lads. You didn't realize that Jesus had an Irish brogue, did you? Laddies. <laughs> but the thing we want to notice is that there is no hint of a reprimand. He doesn't chide Peter for heading off to Galilee. He knows what Peter's struggling with. He knows how weak and inadequate and lost he feels. Remember when we looked at Psalm 103, we were steeping ourselves in it a couple of weeks ago. It says he knows how we are formed. He knows that we are dust. It also said in that Psalm that the Lord is a kind and compassionate father. This father doesn't deal harshly with us, ladies. But I wonder, is that how you picture God? Or do you see him with his arms crossed and a stern look on his face? and a bony finger pointing your way. I know, I've thought that way before. But this is what he's really like. He comes to us and calls to us with a voice so soft, we can barely hear it sometimes. We don't even recognize it, because we are so used to the sound of anger and hatred and violence and criticism. But he calls to us with heartbreaking kindness. Kindness. I remember when I first started to hear his call, I was a sophomore in college, and I didn't know Jesus at all, and I had gotten pregnant, and my boyfriend was far away in Colorado at uh, an all-boys college back then, the Air Force Academy. And uh, you gotta watch out for this all-boys college, all-girls college thing. Um, And I was feeling all alone again, and I have to tell you, I was feeling a little panicky, And then I can't explain it, um, but a calm sort of started to come over me, and I didn't know God the way I know him now, but I just began to feel safe, Uh, like God and I were in cahoots together with the making of this child. The only way to express it really is to use a phrase from the Bible where it says, deep calls to deep. And so somehow I just knew he was in charge. He was making this baby, and I was the vessel. And when I saw her for the first time, I knew for sure there was a God. He was magnificent, creative, kind, and he loved me. Why he loved me, I don't know. I have no idea. I certainly didn't deserve it. I was pregnant, and I didn't have a husband. And back in the 60s, that was a huge no-no. Well, I married my my boyfriend, and um, his name is Mark, and I'm still married to him. And that baby girl is our beautiful firstborn daughter, Beth. A year and a half later, um, I heard the voice of God again when a priest was preaching a sermon. And Jesus was saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And then a few months after that, I bowed my knee to the one who had been pursuing me all my life. His name was Jesus. Jesus comes after us. He calls to us. And he also provides for us. He comes to us and gives us everything we need because he is everything we need. With him in the picture, he's all we need. And Jesus performs a miracle. And it's a good thing he does, because if Peter was trying his hand at fishing again, he wasn't doing very well, was he? Because Peter hadn't reckoned yet with how unsatisfying his life was going to be without Jesus in it. Isn't this true with us too? I mean, didn't we learn this last week with Sissy? When we try to do life without depending fully on Jesus, it's hollow and unfulfilling and downright exhausting. With Jesus, our nets are full and overflowing. Without him, we labor and strive, and we come up empty every time. But you know, I think there's an even deeper message embedded in this second miraculous catch of fish. You remember the first time Jesus filled Peter's nets with fish back in Lesson 1? We learned from Jody that Peter was asking the question, Are you worthy to be followed? And he answered, Yes, Yes, I am. Look at these fish. And Peter ended up following Jesus for the next three years. But now, I think Jesus knows Peter is asking a very different question this time. Now he's asking, am I worthy to follow you? I think his recent denial has shaken him to his core. And now, more than ever before, Peter is aware of his sinfulness. He has been humbled, and now he's wondering Am I worth it? Was I worth all that pain and suffering? And do you still want me as one of your disciples? And Jesus' answer again is Yes, yes, I do. He fills Peter's boat with fish to show him what grace looks like. Peter didn't deserve that kind of abundance, but that's what he got. He got grace. He comes for us, he pursues us, he calls to us, and he gives us grace. So what's Peter's reaction to his master when he finally realizes who it is? Well, Peter repents. He runs home, or should I say swims home to Jesus. This is what repentance looks like. Now, I've noticed something over the years, and that is that repentance is just not our favorite word. There are lots of really good R words in the Bible. I know you noticed that. There's rescue and redemption and restoration and renewal and resurrection and reconciliation. And then there's repentance. It's just not our favorite word. It conjures up thoughts of wild-eyed men in long coats wearing signs that say turn or burn. But I, I think that's a shame Because we, as disciples of Jesus, need to make friends with repentance. It means to return or to change direction. And there's no way that we, his followers, can experience real restoration unless we learn how to repent. Martin Luther said it this way. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance is an invitation to run home to Jesus. John the Baptist and Jesus both preached it. It, They were the first words out of their mouths. Um, And it was used all the time in the Old Testament. Listen to Isaiah 44, 22. O Israel, I will not forget you. I have swept your offenses away like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I've redeemed you. In the message, you know what it says? come back to me, come back. I've redeemed you. So whenever we sin, we wander off into performing or perfectionism or self-reliance or self-medicating or we, we look to others to make ourselves feel good, that's when we need to repent. We may need to do this every day. We may need to do this many times in a day. We need to make friends with repentance. And so how about if we get a little practical and we demystify this a little bit, okay? Tony Evans gives an illustration. I won't be able to do it quite like Tony Evans does. <laughs> Tony Evans, gives, he gives an illustration that describes repentance as making a U-turn. And so it involves some steps, right? So say you're going down the highway of life and let's say you tell a lie. And the Holy Spirit starts whispering to you, Beloved. That's not very loving. Somebody's going to get hurt. And you're hurting yourself. And I miss you now. And by the way, that is what we might call conviction. Gentle. Direct, but gentle. And so now, you're going down the highway, but you realize you're actually going in the wrong direction. Away from Jesus. And you want to turn around. And so, you get off on the highway of the exit ramp, sorry. You, you're on the highway. You get off the highway on the exit ramp of confession. And this is where you tell the Lord you're right. It's always good to tell the Lord you're right. <laughs> confession means that you are agreeing with him. Yes, Lord, I shouldn't have done that. I am so sorry. Will you please forgive me? So there on the exit of confession... You have finally done what you need to do to start the process. And as soon as you do that, you cross over, and there you stand on the overpass, the overpass of grace. Because First 1 John 1, 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There you stand by grace, and his grace is greater than our sin. He's done everything we need. There is nothing left for us to do. He went to the cross. He paid for our sins. We just get to receive all that forgiveness. And and when we do, we move over to the ramp of restoration. And guess where that heads, lady? Straight back to Jesus. Straight back to him. And he's been waiting there all along, and he's been saying, come on home. There's no need for wallowing now in guilt and shame. And there's no need for self-pity or self-loathing. We have been forgiven. And there's no condemnation for us because he took the condemnation that we deserved on himself. And so repentance does two things. Because he died a shameful death, we can be free of any shame that the enemy might want to heap on us. Repentance paves the way to restoration And it also keeps us from getting stuck in shame. Peter got it right. I mean, he's made a lot of mistakes as he stumbled and fumbled along after Jesus. But this right here, he gets it right. He repents. He runs to Jesus. He doesn't do what Judas did. He got stuck in shame. Judas wept bitterly, the Bible tells us. So did Peter. Judas regretted what he had done. So did Peter. But what happens next is what made all the difference. Judas walked away from Jesus, and he kept on walking and walking away until he finally came upon a tree and he hanged himself. He gave up. He thought his sin was too big to forgive, and so he never confessed it. He never took the plunge into grace that would have kept him from despair. He hid in the shadows instead of opening up and becoming humble enough To receive God's love, shame is what killed Judas. And shame is not the same as guilt. As disciples, we're gonna experience appropriate guilt for the things that we do when we are committing sins. It's appropriate to feel guilty when you have done something wrong. And so, guilt says, I did something bad, but shame says, I am bad. And there's a huge difference. Shame keeps us small and afraid, and it keeps us running away from intimacy because we feel naked, right? We feel exposed to humiliation. John Paul Sartre referred to it as a hemorrhage of the soul. It leads to self-absorption and hiding, but because it exposes that we are foolishly trusting in ourselves, it also becomes an invitation for us to look into the eyes of the one who doesn't condemn us, but instead offers us grace and forgiveness and freedom. It was shame that isolated Judas. It kept him from feeling disconnected, it kept him feeling disconnected and unworthy, and in short order, he believed the lie that he was worthless and unforgivable. And at that point, he thought the only way out was suicide. Isn't that sad? If only he had known how deeply loved he was. If only he had waited to see the risen Jesus who was getting ready to absorb all his sin and all his shame on the cross. Jesus stood trial for our sins, and he bore the weight of our shame so that when the unseen powers of this world condemn us, we can point to Jesus and say, I refuse to be weighted down with shame. He took it all, and now I am free. So what about us? How are we doing with this? Are we hiding and isolating and believing the lie that we are our sin? Are we letting our past spoil the beautiful life God wants to give us? The question is, are we going the way of Judas? Or are we going to do what Peter did? Because he chose a different path. Brene Brown says the antidote to shame is vulnerability. And that's what Peter chose. He chose to accept his own brokenness. He knew he needed the love that God was offering to him. And so when Jesus called to him, Peter dove into the sea like he was diving into grace and he swam as fast as he could. When he did that, he gave us a model to follow as disciples of Jesus. We can always run home to Jesus. All we have to do is repent. Lay it all out there. Tell it to Jesus. Confess. And then plunge into his grace and return to him for restoration. Now, all of that is pretty dramatic, I know. Uh, so what does repentance look like on a daily basis? Well, <clears throat> the other day, my husband and I were getting ready to come to church, <clears throat> and he put on a shirt that, um, uh, let's just say it was a little suspect, or a little <laughs> sketchy, girls. <laughs> Tie was not, the, anyway, it was just not quite right. And before I knew it... Um, I started to go in the wrong direction. You know what I mean? Um, And I was laying down some hints, but he wasn't picking up any of the hints that I was laying down. And so we got in the car, and he had the shirt on. And um, as we headed to church, I could feel this critical spirit start to rise up. And my mood was just getting more and more sour. I know this has never happened to any of you before. And then we won't even get to it here, but then there's just the driving the fact that he was actually driving us to church. So I had to sort of repent about how I felt about that, too. But, um, so anyway, we're driving to church, and he's in his shirt. And of course, <clears throat> I had been studying about repentance. And um, darn, the Holy Spirit starts talking to me. And he says, all you have to do is repent. And I said, I know. <laughs> And I'm serious. I had a decision to make. And so um, I said, okay, I'm just going to do it. And so right there in the car, in my heart, next to my husband, he didn't know anything that was going on, uh, I don't think, um, I admitted, okay, I'm so sorry. I admit, Lord, I'm trying to control him. It's probably because I don't feel very good about myself this morning. Anyway, I told God I was Sorry. And right there in the car, without my husband even knowing, I dove into God's grace. And I I, I let him forgive me. And uh, the car kept going to church. But I did a spiritual U-turn. And I'm telling you, that act of repentance saved the whole afternoon. Maybe the whole week. You never know how these things can get out of control. You see, we can always run home to Jesus. This picture of Peter grabbing his tunic and diving into the water and swimming to Jesus is one of my favorite scenes in the Bible. That's the Peter we know and love, isn't it? There he is. He's experiencing the absolute freedom that forgiveness and grace bring into our lives. It reminds me of this quote from Tim Keller. The more you see your own flaws and sins, the more precious, electrifying, and amazing God's grace appears to you. Peter's restoration is underway, but Jesus isn't done yet. He has much more in store for Peter. So while Peter and the boys have been out on the lake, Jesus was busy on the beach. Remember that? He laid the charcoal fire, and he had fish and bread cooking on it. Um, And it all seems so simple on the surface, you know? This is just like the good old days. We've got a barbecue on the beach. But um, do you see what he's doing here? He's laying a table for them. Oh my. It sends such a powerful message of forgiveness and acceptance and restored intimacy to these men. He says to these undeserving sinners, "Come and dine." And isn't it amazing that Jesus invites sinners to his table? I hope I never get over that. I mean, think about it. They all betrayed him. It wasn't just Peter. Matthew 26:35 actually said, When Peter was saying, I'll never leave you, Lord, I'll I'll even die for you, all the disciples said the same thing. But when the shepherd was struck, the scripture says all the sheep scattered, every last one of them ran for their lives, and now Jesus is serving them. He's feeding them and reconnecting with them over a meal. Isn't that amazing? And so now let's imagine we're there. We're there on that shoreline. I hope you can see yourself there because that's us. We are the disciples. We betrayed Jesus too. And yet even when we are unfaithful, even when we wander off, Jesus is the faithful one inviting us to breakfast. They needed to know, Peter needed to know that he still had a place at the table. And so do we. I mean, hasn't there been a moment in your life maybe where you, you thought that you had gone too far and he would never take you back? If there has, then this has been recorded in the Bible just for you. This was a significant part of the restoration process for Peter, but there is still more. So let's go back to the beach. We can hear the sound of the waves lapping there, and the brothers are sitting there talking and kidding around with each other, and the tilapia is crisping up over there, and the pita bread is getting nice and warm. And and then, I know we would have noticed it way before we saw all of that, there's the smell, the smell of that charcoal fire. You know, like it smells when you drive by Hard Eight or <laughs> Riskies. We all know how sensitive we are with smells, don't we? Just a whiff, and in seconds, we can be whisked away to a moment in time that either makes us break out into a smile or sends us into deep, deep sadness. Jesus built that fire. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to redeem the memory of that awful night when Peter huddled by another charcoal fire and betrayed his Savior. He did it so that that smell would never again remind Peter of that night. Because on this morning, Jesus is doing a new thing. So Peter can now walk into the future with a new memory to replace the old one. But you know what? There is still one more thing that needs to be done. Jesus still has to have a conversation with Peter. And I don't know about you, but every time I read about this exchange, I think about Peter. And I wonder if he winced a little when Jesus said, Hey, Peter, let's, let's just take a walk. Let's go down the beach and take a walk. I mean, I wonder if he's thinking he needs to start bracing for a lecture. Um, Maybe he thought he was getting ready to hear the dreaded words, you're fired. (laughs) But look at what actually transpires here. Jesus redeemed the smell of the fire, but Peter had done a whole lot more than just stand by the fire and warm his hands. He had three times said no when he was asked if he knew Jesus. And so now... Jesus gives him the opportunity to change the no's into yeses, Three times, Peter, do you love me? Three times, yes, Lord, you know I do. Three times, feed my sheep. And this time when Jesus says, do you love me more than these? More than the other disciples love me, perhaps? Peter knows better than to compare himself to them. He, he's no different than his brothers. He's no different than anybody else. Peter has fully begun to receive what the gospel of Jesus has been trying to get across to him all along, that he is deeply flawed and deeply loved all at the same time. And you know what? There was a time when Jesus said yes to. Three times he said yes to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Three times he agreed to go to the cross. And it was his yes that canceled out the no that Adam and Eve had said in the Garden of Eden. And so as he bled and died, he put into motion God's plan to get us back, to rescue and restore us. That's how much he loves us. You know, when Peter arrived at the Sea of Galilee that day, I think he thought this was the end of his usefulness to his Lord. But it was really only the beginning. Jesus the carpenter, we learned it back in chapter 1, had called this fisherman to fish for the souls of men and women. And the offer still stands. But not only has he not been disqualified, now the Lamb of God is inviting him to become a shepherd as well. Peter still goes fishing, because in a few short weeks, Peter is going to stand before a huge crowd and tell the story of his Savior, his rescuer, the one who restores. And over 3,000 people will come home to Jesus. 3,000 will jump into the net. But eventually, Peter settles into the role of shepherd of the flock in Jerusalem. It's not as flashy as holding a revival and watching people walk down the aisle. Because being a shepherd is so daily. It requires patience and gentleness and kindness and grace because sheep wander off and they make bad choices. Peter knew that better than anybody. But the good shepherd never gave up on him. He knew him and loved him and believed in him. And Peter and Jesus walked together for the rest of Peter's life. You know, I met Jesus as the restorer 43 years ago. And early on, he gave me Joel 225 as one of my life verses. Sissy quoted it last week. Um, It says, I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Two very broken people got married, my husband and I, and we brought forth six little broken people. And it wasn't long before our sins and the generational sin of the people who had come before us, our families, had reared their ugly heads, and the locusts started chomping away. And Jesus began the healing that we so desperately needed. And sometimes it was very painful, and always it was very messy. And he's not nearly done But I'm telling you, ladies, when the God of Restoration goes to work, miracles come out of the mess. I've seen kids come back from some very dark places. I saw pride get stripped away from my husband who left the marriage and then returned to do the hard work of coming out of hiding and living in humility. In our home, Jesus went to work on fear and perfectionism and pride and anger and legalism and so much more. And forgiveness and grace started to flow. A year and a half ago, our son was near death after a terrible car accident. But God, in His grace, decided to keep him alive. And even now, He's continuing to restore his body and his mind and our relationship, which had been very broken for many years. And I'm telling you, it is a slow and very messy process and it involves a lot of repenting. But when God brings beauty out of the ash heap of your life, you just want to stand up here and tell somebody. (laughs) You want to celebrate the God who is restoring you. And so now, I just want to ask you, what are some of the areas in your life where you've experienced restoration, the kind that Jesus only can bring? I mean, maybe you need to go home and make a list And and tell him you're grateful. And why don't you, while you're at it, go out and tell somebody else what he's done. Tell them your restoration story and see what happens. And and also, what about some of the areas where you actually need restoration, where you're going to need to run back to him and repent or just get with him and ask him to bring healing into that area? (laughs) What about that? And then lastly, there's the issue of repentance. I mean, the question ultimately is, which way are you going? Are you running to Jesus, or are you running away from him? Maybe you're still at square one, and you're just now considering running back to him for the very first time, and you can do that right now, because he's got his arms open wide. Maybe you know him, and you do love him, but something else has gotten in the way, and you've wandered off a little bit. He's still standing there with his arms open wide. And he's saying to you, come back to me. What's keeping you from running to him? Or maybe you're stuck in shame today and you think there's no way out. But I'm here to tell you Jesus is here. He is calling to you and asking you to step out into the open. What do you think would change if you were willing to bring the things you're ashamed of to him instead of hiding them? I happen to know a lot would change because God's got plans for you. His heart is to restore us, ladies, and He's not done yet. He has plans to keep rescuing and renewing and restoring His damaged creation until the day His Son comes back to dwell here in person. And one day, at the restoration of all things, Jesus will again say, Come and dine. He will sit down. And we, the broken, ruined, restored ones, will get to join him as his bride at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Until then, we're being restored, and we get to point to him as the one who's doing the work. We get to run to him and accept his grace so we can change. And so the gospel of his grace can bring hope to a hurting world. There are people out there who are standing on the curb holding their hair dryers. (laughs) They feel all alone and forsaken. And some of them have just gone fishing just to distract themselves or to numb the pain. They desperately need to know they can always run home to Jesus. He's the one who will love and restore them. He's the only one who can. Let's pray, ladies. Father, what a great privilege it is to ponder the greatness of your Of yourself, of your being You are the great God of restoration You do for us what we could never do for ourselves Lord, I pray that even as this message has gone out That you would sow the seeds that need to be sown And water them throughout the week And Lord, that um, the truth of who you really are Kind and gentle and tender Would break in on our lives And reveal to us how much you really love us Father, I pray that these precious women would lean into the process of repentance and restoration so you can be lifted up and glorified and so you can be shown as the the great lover of our souls that you are. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.